Revelation 21 as we can't get far without these. Um, as we conclude this uh, series in uh, the various phrases of the Apostles' Creed, um, we'll read the first uh, six verses of Revelation chapter 21. It's, as you are aware, it's our practice to stand as we read God's Word. So uh, if you are able, uh, please stand uh, together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, Holy Spirit, that You would be at work in this, Your Word. This which You have have revealed to John, which You, even the voice from heaven, commands Him to write this down. Father, You have preserved this for us. For our good. For our growth. For our edification. And we pray that You would use it even to that end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You are all, I trust, familiar with uh, the standard uh, end of every fairy tale. Uh, Cinderella and the rest, they all have a a common ending. Uh, It's Sort of that ending that every young girl longs for, every woman wishes for. It's the same six words over and over again. Every normal, every regular, every good fairy tale ends the exact same way with the exact same six words. And they lived happily ever after. You ever thought about that phrase? Have you ever noticed that's really not an ending at all? In some ways, you might even be tempted to call it a cop-out. Right? It's a way to end the book, but not tell any more of the story. It's actually not an end of the story. It's just the end of what I choose to tell you. It's the end of what I've chosen, the, the story I've chosen to tell you. 
Because at the end of, and they lived happily ever after, I don't know, there's, there's, there's some, you know, true love's kiss, some frog turns into a prince, they get married, and they lived happily ever after. There's no, how many kids do they have? Did they have kids at all? Boys, girls? You don't know. Where'd they go on their honeymoon? You don't know. You don't get any of these answers that you kind of long for. It's, it's a way of ending a story and saying this is as much as I'm going to tell and no more. But in reality, that end is just a beginning. It's, it's semi-sonic all over again. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. That's where our Apostles' Creed ends. It's really not an ending. It's another beginning. And, and truth is, that's where the Bible ends. The Bible doesn't end with an ending. It actually ends with another beginning. And it's as, it's, it's as if God is saying, this is what I will tell you and I will tell you no more. Does this answer all your questions? No. We'll see that as we sort of work through this passage. Are you left kind of wondering what if or what will it be like? Or, or wondering all sorts of things about what eternity holds? Yes, you are. But it's the creed ends where the Bible ends. A beginning. A different kind of beginning, but another beginning Nonetheless, notice, first of all, as we confess, what do we mean by I believe in the life everlasting? What do we mean? Well, the first thing we mean is that this everlasting life is perfect. I think I mentioned last week that perhaps some of you have, and and this is an all too common view among Christian circles, unfortunately. They have this notion, perhaps you might have this notion, that eternity is really one long harp lesson. We are just disembodied spirits floating around in the clouds or up there. Because we know hell is down there, so heaven must be up there. And we're just souls that play harps. I don't know how we play harps if we're just a soul and we don't have hands. See, we, don't, we don't think through these things. We, we have this notion that we're just some spirit floating around in heaven playing the harp for all eternity. And that's not at all what the Bible tells us. That's not at all what Scripture says of eternity. You, you notice as as we read from the first couple of verses here in Revelation 21, there's a, there's a new creation here. The Bible begins with creation. The Bible begins at the beginning. Before Genesis 1, all you have is God. And and. Genesis 1, he brings matter into existence. And at the end of Revelation, at the end of, of the last book of the Bible, what do you have? Another creation. 
You don't have an ending. You have a new creation. Another creation. There's another creation account, as it were. At at the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, we find out that, that God makes everything. And at the end of those six days of creation, it's all very good. But you look at the world we live in, and it's not all very good. You look around you and you're thinking, this is not what I read in Genesis 1 and 2. This is what I read from Genesis 3 onward. Fallen, uh, the fallenness of creation, the brokenness of creation, the sinfulness of man in rebellion against God. Nancy and I spent a little too much time yesterday afternoon, no, yesterday, day, doing yard work. Which probably means come Tuesday I'm going to be, you know, not be able to talk again. We'll see. Because we have weeds in our yard. Because weeds invade and infest your garden. Because you you constantly have to go outside and say to the weeds, get out of my garden. You have to say to the armadillos, get out of my garden. Get out of my yard. Quit digging in my yard. I've got to clean my gutters. It seems like every week. We look around and the creation we live in is not what we read in Genesis 1 and 2. And so, perhaps we might expect that finally, at the end of Revelation, God just gets tired of it all and says, you know what, forget it, I'm done, zap, explosion, end of everything. It might make a cool you know, end of a 3D movie. We, we, we might expect that. We might think, well, surely that's what's going to come at the end of the book. That's not what we get at all. Instead, we get... A recreation. John has this vision of a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth have, have passed away. The sea is no more. And then this vision of the holy city coming down out of heaven, down to earth. This is why the resurrection is so important. It's why, we, why the creed puts the resurrection before everlasting life. Because we need resurrected bodies for life in the, the new heavens and the new earth. This earth suit that you and I wear now is perfectly suitable for the conditions in which you and I live. It is not designed for the new heavens and the new earth. We'll have a new body, a recreated body. Again, we don't, I don't know what that means. Will it be the same? Yes. Will you be recognizable? Yes. Do you wish to add a couple inches to your height or maybe take a few off or go back to you know, the 35-year-old me versus the... I don't know. We aren't told all that stuff. But what we know is that there will be a resurrected body, a new body designed for, fit for that new earth. Because in verse 4, No more effects of sin. No more effects of brokenness. 
The effects of sin will no longer remain in us. Wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Because those things are gone. Our bodies get weaker. Our bodies grow tired. Our bodies break. Our bodies fall apart. And that will no longer happen. I'm sore today because of the yard work I did yesterday. Up and down a ladder and trying to hold a curved blower in my gutters up over my head, which by the way is way cool, but it's not as easy as it sounds. Not to mention all the stuff that was falling down on my head, but that's another story. The bodies you and I wear now, the earth suits you and I are in now are, are hurtling towards death and decay. And after that, life actually gets better. That's the picture at the end of Revelation. C.S. Lewis tried to capture this, by the way, um, in the last battle. The, the children and, and some of the animals, uh, they, they go into that hut um, and, and kind of come out the other side. And they find themselves in yet another land. They've, they've left Narnia, as it were. Um, and it's a, a land brighter and purer than even Narnia was, uh, than the Narnia they had known. And it's not terribly different, but it's better. It's a brighter, purer, better place. And as they walked on farther up, farther in, uh, they discover the world gets purer and brighter still. All of these things are sin. Sin ruined the very good of Genesis 1 and 2. And at the end of Revelation, what we find out is that God is going to fix what we broke. The very good is coming back. We're longing for the very good. Once more, all that sin did to damage the very good will be taken away and you and I will be left with the very good all over again. It's a picture of perfection. It's a picture of a world in which there is no sin, there is no fallenness, there is no brokenness, where bodies don't fall apart, where bones don't break, where allergies don't corrupt, where there's no more mourning, where there's no more crying, all our tears are wiped away for good. Everlasting life will be perfect. But notice also, and this is, this is I know, horribly redundant. Everlasting life will be permanent. And that's sort of the definition of everlasting, right? Okay, I get it, but I needed a P. I was done with the E's. I needed P. So we're going to go with permanent. Uh, everlasting life is permanent. Life doesn't end after the resurrection of the body. The truth is, life doesn't end for us at all. Drink that down for a second. You realize your life never ends. The moment you die, yes, your body is done, 
But your spirit is immediately taken to be with Christ. So you're immediately in heaven. Your soul lives. Your soul is delivered from this fallen, broken earth suit in which it dwells to be with Christ waiting for a new suit to put on. For a new earth suit. That's not a new earth suit, but a new earth. A suit for the new earth. Notice... You are separated from your body. There are those of us who think of ourselves as a body that has a soul. The opposite is actually true. You're not a body with a soul. You're a soul that happens to be wearing this earth suit. C.S. Lewis even pointed that out. As well, You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. For that matter, we get that from the lips of Jesus on the cross, do we not? The thief next to Him repents of his sin, confesses faith in Christ, and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And do you remember what Jesus said? Today, you. Not, today, your soul will be with me in paradise. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Yes, our body goes to the ground. Our body decays. Our body breaks down and ashes to ashes, dust to dust, earth to earth. We return to that from whence we came. But the truth is, our bodies die, but your soul actually springs to the presence of Christ forever. It would have been uh, common, certainly as, as John is writing this letter late in the first century, as he's writing this book, the Greek, um, typical Greek philosophy, and, and, and this plays out, and you may even be tempted to think this issue yourself, and, and you may know people who do. They have this notion that, that God has a bucket of souls, And he's just waiting for a body to be conceived into which he could could put one of those souls. Uh, It doesn't quite work that way. God creates us, meaning creates our soul, creates our spirit, creates as he knits our bodies together. There's not some infinite, eternal, um, infinite or, or eternal sort of. Um, life for our souls. The way uh, uh, those who believe in recreation would do this. They just think the soul goes on and on forever and, and every now and then it gets put into a new body and then that body dies and then God takes the soul and waits until, okay, well now we'll put you in that body and let you live there for a little while. No, our, our souls are created by God. They're created by God to be with our bodies. We're an embodied spirit. We're not a body with a soul. Which means that everlasting life is permanent. Our bodies die. Our bodies fall apart. Our bodies are buried in the ground and will decay unless Christ comes back too quickly. 
and yet will one day be raised to be reunited with our soul. That makes sense, doesn't it? When you think about what death actually is, what is death? Well, death is actually the, the last hurrah of sin. It's sort of the thing that, that sin says, I've thrown arrows at you, but you haven't yet tasted of the one good one I got left. And when you finally die, that's, that's sin saying, this is the greatest, this is the most powerful, this is the most dangerous, this is the most, in his mind, in Satan's permanent, this is the greatest weapon I've got. I'll use the little weapons until I finally use the big one on you, so to speak. And if you can defeat death, then sin has to say, I got nothing. And so when Jesus walks out of that tomb on the third day, sin had to say, I got nothing. So when you and I, at the last day when Christ returns and brings our bodies up out of the ground to be reunited with our souls, sin is left with nothing. Meaning, your body won't even be able to die in the new heavens, in the new earth. It's not just that you won't, it's that you can't. Because there, there is no sin. Because there, there are no effects of sin. Your body can't break down in the new creation. Which means that life must be permanent there. You're actually unable to die at that point. A world with no sin, it can't fade. It can't die. It can't fall apart, nor can those in whom sin no longer rules and reigns. If you're a believer here this morning, by the way, that is, that is your hope. That's exactly what Christ has come to do for you and in you. Our, our justification, our being declared righteous in His sight, our forgiveness of sins, our change of status from enemy with God to friend of God. That's what justification is. Our, our justification frees us from the penalty of sin. Our sanctification, our growth in grace, as we grow and mature in our walk with Christ, we're being freed from the power of sin. Our glorification... When we're with Him for all eternity, we are freed from the very presence of sin. That's your hope. Where sin is no more, there can be no more death. Everlasting life is permanent. Lastly, I want you to notice that everlasting life is also presence. What does this new life look like? What does this perfect, permanent life look like? What's so important about it? 
Well, it's not simply that we just exist. It's not mere existence, as it were. Um, The Bible doesn't describe life as sort of, I've got a pulse, I've got a, a warm body, I take some breaths every now and then. The reality is, people in hell have that. In fact, you maybe even noticed that all are raised and all have everlasting life. The difference between the two, because you notice the way verse 8 ended. In verse 8, you have, well, these people, cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion is in the lake with fire that burns, which is the second death. Notice they don't stay dead. They also are raised and have eternal life. So what separates their life from the believer's life in the new creation? Well, life, biblically speaking, isn't just having breath. It's having God. God's presence distinguishes those who are raised to judgment and face the second death, those who are raised to life in Christ. Look at verse 3. Notice what happens in verse 3. John has this vision. I hear this loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Tell me, tell me those words are familiar to you. Tell me that phrase sounds like something you've heard before. Because we did Genesis not all that long ago. And we kept noticing over and over and over again that God promised in His covenant to Abraham, and then it unfolds throughout the whole rest of the book of Genesis, God promises a people, a place, and His presence. And finally says, in this new earth, this new creation, the dwelling place of God is with His people. He promised His presence to Abraham. He promised His presence to Moses. We get similar words from Jeremiah. That God will be Israel's God and they will be His people. So how is this different? This is different because this is perfect. And this is permanent. God's dwelling place will ultimately, finally, permanently, completely be with God, I mean, with His people. In fact, look down at verse 22. We didn't read this far. But look down at verse 22 of chapter 21. Uh, John gets a glimpse of this city. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and he measures it. He knows how tall the walls are, how long they are, how thick they are. He knows all sorts of things about the city. And then he notices something. Hey, this is Jerusalem. There's something missing from this Jerusalem. What is it? I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. For that matter, it doesn't need a sun to shine on it because the glory of the Lord is the sun. There is no temple. 
Throughout the whole Old Testament, God promised, I am where the tabernacle is. I am where the temple is. I am with my people in this temple. And in the new creation, there isn't one. That doesn't mean God is gone. It means that He's physically, permanently, perfectly present with us. The temple is the picture of God's presence. Its absence simply means that God is going to be physically present there with His people. I think if we're honest, those aren't the kinds of questions we typically ask of what will eternity be like. Those aren't the kinds of questions we ask about what will it be like in heaven. We ask things like, what am I going to be doing? How good at golf will I actually be? Could I maybe break 80, maybe even break 70? Could I shoot even par a time or two? Will there be golf at all? What about like fine wine and and great yummy chocolate dessert because if it's not chocolate it's not dessert apple pie is a fruit those are the questions we ask but but we have to kind of wonder if we're imposing the joys of this life onto the next have we underestimated the joy of presence with Christ. Now I'm not saying the joys of this life won't be there. I'm just simply saying if all we can think about is the things we like here and will they there will those things be there? Perhaps we've underestimated the joy of immediate physical presence with Christ. When God is with His people, they have life. Everlasting life isn't isn't altogether different from life on earth. It's just more complete. It's more perfect. It's more permanent. It's a better version of it. Because we have God with us now, but it'll just be better without our sinfulness to get in the way. We try to export life onto this of in this earth on this earth into the future life in the new creation. I wonder if we shouldn't try to be I wonder if we shouldn't be trying to do the opposite. What if instead of imposing this world on that one, what if we sought that world to come here? What if we looked for ways to bring that life into this one? Isn't that really the goal of the Christian life? The Great Commission. In Matthew 28, we're given instructions to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching, bringing people into the covenant community and growing them in godliness. Reaching and equipping. Gathering and perfecting. And yet, the fuel for that is the promise of Christ's presence with us by His Spirit for all eternity. Even to the end of the age. 
you and I are actually engaging and advancing the kingdom of God. And that means establishing beachheads of God's presence with His people in new and different places in this world. We're actually called to bring a foretaste of heaven, to give the people around us a glimpse of what eternity would be like. God's people with God in His presence forever. Wherever the Gospel takes hold of a heart, God is present there by His Spirit and the beginning of happily ever after starts. Disney princess movies, I guess many of the older ones, I don't watch too many Disney princess movies anymore. They end with a wedding. They end with a, a marriage. And as the, you know, the standard old Disney circle sort of comes to a close, from the backs of them, the, the bride and the groom as they walk away, we're told, and they lived happily ever after. We don't see a honeymoon. We don't see kids. We don't know if they had kids or how many kids or whether they were boys or girls. We don't see them interacting with their children at bedtime. We don't know the stories they read to them as their kids were growing older. We don't know what jobs they had. We don't know any of those things. We're not told any of that information. All we get is, and they lived happily ever after. That's, in essence, how the Bible ends. With one long, to steal the words of one writer, with one long, glorious honeymoon. That's what you and I anticipate. That's what you and I long for. One long, glorious honeymoon. God with His people. I want you to notice something about the Bible for just a second. It doesn't answer our questions. Will we have pets there? You know, all those sorts of things. The Bible's much more concerned with seeing that you get there than describing what there is like once you're there. The Bible takes far more interest in seeing to it that you and I get to heaven and how to get there rather than describing what the there is like once we live in the new creation. Maybe that should be our pattern as well. Maybe that's a pattern you and I should follow. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ and Him alone for your salvation, this description, this new earth in Revelation 21 is yours if you will turn and trust in Him to save you from your sin. If you'll repent of your sin and turn in faith to Christ, this new creation is yours. It's held out for you. Maybe that should be our greater care, our greater goal, our greater focus, that we talk more about getting others there than what the there will be like once we are there. The reality is, this new earth should fuel how we live in this world. 
I can't help if you were if you were into Christian music in the what '90s, probably I think that's what sort of mid '90s. Uh, Cademan's call has been kind of running through my head. This world has nothing for me, and this world has everything. All that I could want, and nothing that I need. Oh, that God might grant us the grace to so long for the new earth that we can't help but grab others as we run there and long to take them with us and recognize that all that we want, all that we need, is there and not here. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, we thank You for this picture we have of the new heavens and the new earth. Of the life that is yet to come. That our resurrected, glorified bodies will perfectly and permanently be in Your presence. Father, we pray that You would use that hope, that reality, that promise to fuel our lives on this earth, in this earth suit, until we get our new one. That we would long to see others come with us and taste of life in the new earth alongside of us. Father, we pray that You would give us, give us glimpses of that new creation, foretaste of, of that new creation even in this life. That the things of this world would grow strangely dim to us in the light of the glory and grace of Christ. That this world that offers us everything, we would see as having absolutely nothing compared to the joy of perfect, permanent presence with Christ. For it's in Christ's name that we pray and for His sake that we ask it. Amen.